Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. This week, we are very excited to be sitting down with a great friend of ours and a font of wisdom on all things Asia, Andrew Shearer. Andrew is one of the leading voices on national security, defense, and strategy in the Indo-Pacific today. He spent more than 25 years working at the highest levels in the Australian government, including serving as the national security advisor for two of Australia's prime ministers, John Howard and Tony Abbott. He is currently serving as the senior advisor on Asia-Pacific security and is the director of the Alliances and American Leadership Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. You'd be hard-pressed to find a more authoritative and experienced voice when it comes to Australia's role in the Indo-Pacific today, and we are just delighted to have him with us. Andrew, welcome to Tea Leaves. Thanks, Kurt. Great to be with you. So, Andrew, let me just start uh, with just a general question. I note that you've served in this very um, important capacity as National Security Advisor, and we've seen the proliferation of national security um, staff, not just in the Asia-Pacific region, but elsewhere. What does it mean to be the National Security Advisor in Australia, and how is it similar, and how does it differ from the position in the United States? I think... The similarity, Kurt, is that that position is really where a whole lot of different things come together at the top of a government, and no one leader can have their head around everything to do with foreign policy, national security, uh, and they need to lean on someone, and that someone is the national security advisor. I guess the the major difference uh, between the Australian system, which is a Westminster-based government system, and the US is that... The National Security Advisor in Australia is also a political advisor to the Prime Minister. So I would have to um, worry about the policy implications of any given issue, but I would also be responsible for preparing the Prime Minister for question time, uh, which happens in our system daily when Parliament's sitting, and making sure that he had strong political defence lines and offence lines on, on issues. So I think that's that's a difference because in your system, the politics is sort of um, in a separate channel, if you like. And Andrew, in a capacity like that, how many people would you have working for you and who can you task to do work on behalf of the Prime Minister? So again, the setup is is rather different. You don't have your own substantial staff. I had uh, a couple of offsiders and uh, an executive assistant. What's an offsider, just so I know? Uh, two deputies, you know, um, one covering basically domestic security issues, kind of cyber, counterterrorism and so on, and the other one working more on foreign policy and trade policy. But then we had the Prime Minister's Department, which is more like your NSC staff, uh, permanent public servants tasked with supporting the Prime Minister on those issues. And I guess we probably had about 30... 35 people we could task directly on foreign policy, maybe another 30, 35 on defense and security. As you look at the world from Australia's perspective right now, and I know that foreign policy has some of the similar, same 
divisions uh, uh, between the parties, even uh, inside them in Australia that we have here in the United States. Is Australia essentially optimistic or concerned about the future as it looks outside its borders? I think Australia's in transition on that, Kurt. I think when you look at the last 50 years, um, we've had a period of, I think, quite profound uh, stability at the macro level in the Indo-Pacific, and that's underpinned a period of really fabulous prosperity, right? The rise of China, hundreds of millions of people lifted out of poverty, the whole sort of Asian economic miracle. And Australia has been um, superbly positioned, really, to take advantage of that. And uh, Australia has had, I think, now 27 years of consecutive economic growth, so powered through the Asian financial crisis and the the more recent global financial crisis um, with positive growth, that's quite that's quite significant. It's to do partly with good policy settings, but it's also to do with our ability to tap into what's happening in the region. But I think now there are, if you like, uh, some storm clouds on on what's previously been a pretty pretty sunny horizon. And I think the geopolitics of the region are changing in ways that many Australians are still catching up with. So earlier you used the term Indo-Pacific, a term that's more in vogue strategically here in the United States as opposed to the Asia-Pacific. What does it mean to you and why do you use that uh, uh, rather than other terminology to describe the region? I think the power of the term lies in two things. One, it opens up a wider geography. Um, it brings into play the strategic importance of the Indian Ocean, for example. And of course, Australia has one very long coastline on that ocean. We're, a, we're an Indo-Pacific country, literally. Our east coast is washed by the Pacific and our west coast is washed by the Indian Ocean. So that makes real sense for an Australian. If you think about our strategic history and our, our economic history, indeed, our major lifeline back to our traditional security partners and back to our traditional markets ran across the Indian Ocean and through the Gulf and up into Europe. And I think that's still a very powerful driver for, for Australia, and it's why we have a global perspective rather than a narrowly kind of South Pacific or even Southeast Asian perspective on these issues. So I think I think that's really important. Then the other part of the Indo-Pacific construct that I think is important is that at least implicitly it brings into play the whole values question and India as a strategic player in the region that can make a contribution that's increasingly aligned with US interests, Japanese interests, Australian interests, but also with our values in the sense of it being an enduring democracy. So we've spoken for a few minutes now, only one big country in the Asia-Pacific region you have not named yet, China. Uh, give us a sense of what you think are the big issues for Australia uh, when thinking about China. I always have been struck in my time in uh, Australia, the business community, very bullish generally, very excited about the China market. Um, you provide China with, with a lot of the grist for the great Chinese mill, its energy, its natural resources. Um, where do you see that relationship going? And uh, are, there are there areas of anxiety in the what is generally a pretty positive relationship between Australia and China? This is a huge question for Australia. I think it's really, you know, the question for the rest of my career and 
for policymakers in Australia today, this is no question that the paramount um, economic, political and strategic issue uh, that we are grappling with. I think um, I like to sort of unpack this a bit for Americans by saying I think America has very legitimate concerns about many of China's trade practices, its restricted investment market, its, um, I like to call it, industrial scale strip mining of intellectual property. You know, I think I think these are very real issues and I think they're putting strain on the WTO system and the global economy. But Australia's economic relationship with, with China is quite different. It's, it's mostly about commodities exports. It's stuff we dig up, put on ships and, and sell to China. It's a very straightforward transactional relationship with fewer downsides than the US economic relationship. So I think that's one reason why Australia's business community in particular is much more sort of bullish on, on China than many American businesses who have had much tougher experiences dealing with China. I think strategic depth is another reason for the difference. Um, two of the United States' most important treaty partners, countries to which you have solemn security commitments, Japan and the Philippines, for example, are right in the front line of China's rise, China's economic coercion, its um, its grey zone tactics using its coast guard and its its fishing militia. So, so you have a a, a different take understandably, on on that. And, and um, all allies should be pleased that America takes those security commitments as seriously as it does. Again, Australia's a bit different. The point, I think, that, that, that is relevant today, though, is that that strategic depth is starting to collapse under the impact of China's military modernisation, its growing political and economic influence throughout the region. And Australians are grappling with that I think we're probably, you know, three or four years behind the debate in the United States. But what I see living in Washington today is a, a really profound shift in US thinking here, a kind of tipping point where 30 years basically of of engagement-driven policy towards China has now been formally abandoned and the United States is moving to a much more competitive uh, relationship with China. That's not to say there won't be areas of cooperation, obviously, but I think the balance is tipped to competition. And I think Australia is starting to catch up with that reality and think through what that means for Australia. And you could see that in the, the government's 2017 foreign policy white paper, which if you join the dots carefully, is a balancing strategy to deal with the rise of China. Andrew, you, you talked a little bit about China's growing cultural and political power. Earlier this year, there were a, ser a series of uh, really uh, uh, almost shocking exposés about uh, uh, activities of uh, certain groups inside Australia, either purchasing real estate or educational uh, efforts that pointed to Chinese um, influence in Australia. And I think uh, it'd be useful for our listeners for you to give us a sense of what 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 is that about and how did the Australian debate respond uh, to some of those concerns? So I think the the important starting point here, Kurt, is to is to differentiate very clearly legitimate forms of influence, and all powers will seek to to influence other countries and 
there's nothing inherently illegitimate about that. Um, what is problematic, and you know, we're seeing that in this country at the moment with Russian interference in the presidential election, what is problematic and does need to be pushed back against very firmly is political interference, which is in its nature corrupting, um, corrosive, uh, often covert, um, and and in its intent, maybe even maybe only long term intent, but but coercive, intended to apply coercive pressure to another country, and that's a difficult issue to grapple with for for democracies like ours that. Uh, since the end of the Cold War, have really felt that they're at peace and there's not a kind of existential systemic challenge to them. And I think um, the government's moves in this area are, are, are good. I think they're overdue. Uh, bans on foreign political donations. I think many Americans would be surprised that that was legal in Australia, still legal until until a new legislation passes. Uh, register for foreign agents and a toughening of our counter uh, of our espionage laws. All of that, I think, is is good. It's overdue, but it's really the end of chapter one, not the end of the story. Mm. So uh, tell us a little bit about the relationship now between Australia and the United States. How has that evolved? Um, I think we see in Australian domestic politics some interesting corollary nationalist uh, sentiment that's also rising. I'd be curious about how you think that is uh, reinforced by or influenced by the so-called Trump phenomena here in the United States, now President Trump. So Australia is one of America's oldest allies. Um, Australians like to crow a bit that that we're the only ally who's been beside you for every major conflict since the First World War. Um, and I think I think there is a profound depth of public support for the alliance. Polling consistently for the last decade or so has shown about three quarters of Australians think the alliance is important or very important for our security. Um, and and the other thing that the polling shows, which I think is is really interesting and in a way encouraging, uh, is that Australians are able, it seems, to differentiate their their personal feelings about the president of the day, in this case President Trump, and the alliance, so that they are able to separate those two things out, and and support for the alliance remains, as I say, very strong in in the political system. Support is bipartisan. And while I think the alliance is fundamentally sound, what what troubles me is there are just a couple of little data points out there now, uh, and I don't think we can be complacent. I think uh, for, for the last 20 or 30 years, I think governments, the Australian one included, have kind of failed to make the case for alliances, for free trade, for a whole lot of the fundamental pillars that have that have held the the world order together, and Australia is no different in that case. And I think we do need to find ways to re-engage Australians, especially young Australians, about 
why this alliance is so important to us. And the other thing that troubles me a little is that uh, on the on the Labor side of politics, some of the really strong figures uh, who have been very pro-alliance, people like Kim Beasley, former ambassador to the United States and leader of the Labor Party, a real champion of this alliance, someone who uh, rolled up his sleeves and, and got stuck in during the knife fights with the, the Labor left in the 1980s, really held Labor support for the alliance together. Those figures are starting to pass from the scene, and I don't see them being replaced by a future crop of leaders who are as committed to the alliance. So that's just something that I'm going to be watching closely, and I think we need to mm. to work really hard at. Uh, Andrew, explain the the so-called Hugh White phenomena in uh, Australia, who he is, what he represents, what the implications are. So Hugh's... Uh, Hugh's been a friend of mine for over 20 years. He's very smart. He was um, Deputy Secretary of the Defence Department. He was uh, Foreign Policy Advisor to Bob Hawke, one of our most successful Prime Ministers. He's very articulate. He's very uh, bright. And his his voice uh, is loud in the Australian debate. It, it, it really carries and... I think it carries disproportionately, frankly, in this country, the United States. Say, tell our listeners a little bit about what, uh, what in fact is the message uh, in his voice. Though. Sure. So, so the message has has shifted a little over time, which is not unreasonable. But, but the core of the message is that uh, that China's power is rising inexorably in such a way that it will. Uh, it will replace American uh, predominance in the Indo-Pacific region. His last essay on this uh, is titled Australia Alone, and it includes you know, a really stark judgment, confronting judgment, I think, whether for Australians or Americans, that when it comes to this competition between China and the United States, it's over. Uh, China has won the United States has lost and Australia basically needs to ad adjust itself to that reality. And um, while Hugh's often pretty woolly about what that means in concrete policy terms, the broad thrust of his argument is that Australia should distance itself somewhat from the United States, rely less on the United States and accommodate more of China's interests, uh, particularly the interests that China identifies as its core interests in the region. What's the relationship like now between Australia and New Zealand? I mean, you know, you you share so much and, you know, mutual love of rugby and cricket and the Commonwealth and more good wine. Yeah, good wine. But what's it like? I mean, you know, New Zealand and Australia took different paths in the late 1980s around defense issues. New Zealand's come around a bit, but what's how would you describe that partnership? I think the best, the most succinct way to describe it to Americans is that uh, New Zealand is our Canada. Um, the, the, the geostrategic reality for Canada is that if the United States is secure, so is Canada. And, and, that's very much true for New Zealand. So as you said, Kurt, from the 80s, they took a different path. They had um, the luxury of um, 
relying on Australia to to maintain security in the immediate region, so the South Pacific in their case, and to maintain, to be blunt, only pretty um, desultory levels of capability, certainly defence capabilities. I think that has started to turn around. I think there's a more constructive relationship between the two countries. I think they've worked together pretty well in the South Pacific. And I think there's a realisation now that as uh, Chinese influence grows in that region and some of the negative aspects of that, like debt dependence, corruption and so on, Australia and New Zealand have a real interest in helping these small countries, many of them barely viable in reality as as separate economic entities at least, helping those countries build up their capacity and their resi- their resilience in the face of some of these external pressures. So I think I think the the, the longer term uh, prospects are pretty good. The other thing is Australia and New Zealand are to all to all effects one economy. Uh, it's one of the, the world's oldest and most comprehensive free trade agreements between the two countries. And uh, that's been very important, especially for New Zealand, I think. So just back a little bit on the relationship between the United States and Australia, I'm always struck that there is an almost natural affinity, at least from the American perspective. We enjoy Australians. We uh, feel comfortable interacting with them. They share some of our uh, peccadilloes. Uh, how do Australians feel about the United States at a person-to-person level, if I may ask? I think it's still incredibly strong. Um, I think Americans probably don't appreciate the the amount of kind of cultural penetration, if you like, of Australia. Um, it's fascinating. During the Second World War, Australia's population was just over 3 million people. And in the course of about three or four years, 1 million American service personnel passed through the country. Wow. And when you think about that and the impact of that, socially, economically, politically, culturally, really, um, really powerful shift in Australia's orientation. And Australia started looking to the United States well before the Second World War for security. When uh, Teddy Roosevelt sent the Great White Fleet around the world, it's really interesting. The Australian Prime Minister of the day, Alfred Deakin, did an end run around the British government, who were appalled, wrote directly to TR and asked him to send the fleet to Australia. And that's because Australia was already worried about the rise of Japan and that um, Britain would not always be able to guarantee our security in the region. So I think that impulse is really deep, really strong and and abiding. And, and I do think that Australians are quite good at kind of filtering some of the froth and bubble, if you like, mm-hmm. of American politics out of it, although I don't for a moment um, maintain that some of what's happening now in terms of policy and tweets and so on isn't isn't causing a lot of concern among Australians. Mm-hmm. So can we do a little uh, word association game? I'm going to just say a word and maybe just hear what your response is to it. Just whatever comes to your mind, okay? Coral Sea. Battle. 
you have to do more than that. So <laughs> you have to describe what, what paragraph comes to your mind. You know what comes to my mind? Um, that that battle was decisive for Australia. That The battle that was decisive in terms of the, the trajectory of the Second World War in the Pacific, at least, was Midway, which came about a month later. But for Australia, Coral Sea stopped the Japanese invasion of Port Moresby had they succeeded in that. Uh, Australia's future would have been very different. And the other reason it was significant is that Australian naval personnel participated fully in that battle alongside the United States Navy. And that was after decades of preparing to fight with the Royal Navy. And the interesting thing about those early days of the Pacific War is we were not prepared to fight together, even though I think it should have been fairly obvious that one day that was going to happen. So the level of interoperability between our forces was um, frankly pathetic. Uh, we had we suffered major losses at the Battle of Savo Island, for example, because we didn't have any common operating procedures. Our commanders didn't understand how to fight together, how to how to work together, how to communicate. But we learnt, we did it. We we fought together successfully in Coral Sea, and by 1944, there was an extraordinary level of interoperability between the two militaries and. Where we got to after 9-11 was we basically got back to that point where today the US military and the Australian Defence Force are, to all intents and purposes, integrated. The Bali bombings. That was a body blow for, for Australia. Um, that night in Bali, more Australians died per capita than Americans were killed on 9-11. It was different in that. It was outside the country. But of course, to many Australians, Bali is kind of an extension of far north Queensland or something. So that was a real shock, a real kind of end of innocence for Australians. And I think that experience explains why Australians, the Australian public, and I've worked on these issues, I've been involved in many of our military deployments against um, terrorists in Afghanistan and more recently in Iraq and Syria against ISIL, Australians have no problem at all with the idea that prosecuting the war on terror, to give it its old and perhaps discredited name, away from our shores is vital in terms of protecting Australians from terrorism at home. They understand that nexus perfectly well and We've never had trouble making that argument to the Australian public, and I think Bali's the key reason for that. Mm -hmm. Deputy Sheriff. My old boss, John Howard, never said that. <laughs> um, the journalist who was interviewing him, I think it was a journalist from The Bulletin, which is a now defunct news magazine, put that proposition to, to him, and I think John's said and written subsequently that his error was not to stomp on it at the time. I just think it's such a mischaracterization. You know, um, Kurt, you were very involved in supporting Australia's efforts in East Timor, for example, in 1999, right? And uh, that's as far as you could get from being a deputy sheriff, in my view. Um, it's about partnership, right? Uh, the United States, in the end, thanks to you and your colleagues, provided um, diplomatic support, really powerful deterrent effects 
in in Jakarta, um, over the horizon military support, extensive intelligence and other forms of enabling support. But it was actually better for everyone, better for Australia, better for Indonesia, better for East Timor, better for the region and better for the United States that Australia led that operation in coalition with regional countries. Um, so even though at the time I think John Howard was frustrated that the United States didn't contribute forces on the ground, this was a case where the outcome was actually better than the one he was asking for. Battle of the Ashes. Well, we flogged them um, this time around and um, I'm hoping we'll do it again in the UK. Explain, explain to our listeners what we're referring to. Kurt's referring to Australia's existential sporting contest against our former colonial masters, the English, where every two years we play each other at cricket, alternating between Australia and England, where, of course, the key game, the most symbolic game, is played at Lords, the home of cricket. And the Ashes is a reference to a set of bales that were burnt after Australia first de defeated England uh, years and years ago, over 100 years ago now, uh, and they were, they were preserved in a small urn as the, the ashes of English cricket prowess. Uh, and every two years, these two countries do war over that little urn. Really good red wine. Australia has the best big red wine, I think, anywhere. Um, my own favourites are Barossa Valley Reds from South Australia. I've certainly had my political moments with South Australia, a couple of run-ins on naval shipbuilding and submarines, but I can't fault their wine. So um, if I had to boycott something from South Australia, it would not be red wine. So for American listeners who are thinking about a vacation, Take us through each of the key Australian cities, Sydney, Canberra, Perth, Melbourne. Give us a sense, Darwin, give us a sense what each of them are like, how they are similar, and how they differ. Well, I'm a Melbourne boy, so I'm going to start with the best city in Australia. Um, Melbourne is is the, the quiet, uh, unassuming refined centre of centre of culture in Australia. Uh, it's where all the best sport is. Uh, it's where the best food is. It's where the best uh, restaurants, theatre, ballet, art. It's the it's the cultural capital of, of the country. Uh, and um, uh, not being in Melbourne is uh, one of my only regrets about being here in Washington at the moment. Uh, Sydney, though, even though there's a traditional rival rivalry between Melbourne and Sydney, Sydney's a great city. I think um, any Australian who who flies into Sydney and is on the harbour and sees the sun sparkling on those blue waves, the the white sails of the Opera House, the curve of the Sydney Harbour Bridge feels nostalgic and feels like their home. So Sydney has a very, very important place in the heart of all Australians. And it, it really is our global city. It's the city that people recognize. I like to say if I, you know, 
if I had the resources, I'd have a nice house in in Melbourne to live in and I'd have a really nice apartment to party in in Sydney. Um, and then there are the, the, the sort of less, perhaps less travelled parts of Australia. Tasmania's got beautiful wilderness, uh, fantastic hiking, uh, superb fresh food, uh, cheeses, cold country wine. Um, far north Queensland is beautiful, the Great Barrier Reef, um, the rainforests up there, extraordinary country, miles and miles of um, unspoilt natural beauty, great swimming, great sailing. Uh, Western Australia, uh, good wine. They play the right code of football over there as well, Australian rules. Um, a vast, vast um, state, huge territory, enormous mineral riches and only three or four hours from Southeast Asia. I mean, closer to closer to Jakarta and Singapore than than Sydney. It's um, it's a it's a really important part of Australia, and it often feels a little neglected by the rest of the country. And then uh, we talked about South Australia, great wine country. Um, my dad's from Adelaide, so I've still got a, a soft spot for for South Australia. It's um. It's a remarkable place, and I, I like to say to Americans, it's it's basically the same size as the United States. It's just got no one living in the middle of it. Um, so, you know, when you're in a plane here flying from the East Coast to the West Coast, you fly over city after city after city, town after town. Uh, you can fly for hours over Australia and not see anything except sand drifts and, and, and rocks. Uh Andrew, it sounds like you miss Australia. It sounds like I'd like to go as quickly as possible, given the Washington winter. Let me you, ask you're you, always welcome down there, Kurt. You know that. Thank you. Uh, Andrew, let me ask you. So you've lived uh, and worked in Washington. You're, uh, in many respects, almost an honorary American. But thank you. you. Close, strong ties, obviously, continuing in Australia. You've had a chance to watch our politics, both of us, up close. Mm -hmm. Which is tougher? Mm -hmm. Which is a tougher inside game? Uh, Canberra or Washington, D.C.? Well, it's perhaps best to use a, a football metaphor here. I mean, both of our countries have um, have pretty um, bruising football contests. Uh, I guess the difference in Australia is we don't wear helmets or padding. <laughs> um, I think Australian politics is is very tough and very brutal in, in one different sense from US politics. And that is, as I said earlier, it's a Westminster system. And uh, when the Prime Minister turns up in Parliament and faces the opposition over the dispatch box and they're baying at him and he can hardly hear himself talk, um, it's, it's a complete cauldron. And... One of the toughest things that I used to have to do when I worked for both prime ministers is that one hour before they go into that cauldron where they can be asked any question about any issue, they can be asked 20 questions in a row and you've got to prepare them for that, for whatever left field thing's going to come up. And you see then the pressures of the office and how how hard it is. Um, American politics obviously is going through a an incredibly difficult period. I'm ultimately an optimist about this because I think your institutions are incredibly resilient and robust. They're being tested at the moment. So far, I think they're standing up to that test and 
you know, when you look at the long sweep of American history, I think one of the things that makes this country that defines it is that you do have these enormous convulsions, economic convulsions, social, political convulsions every 40 or 50 years. And I think you're going through another one of those. The encouraging thing to judge from the past is that each time you've gone through one of those, you have come out the other side and you've come out stronger and revitalized. And that's something that I think your friends and allies are desperately looking for and hoping for. So I, uh, I accept your offer of optimism, but do you think after walking away from something like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which would have essentially woven the key economies of the Asia-Pacific region together in a fundamental way, do you think it's going to be hard to really fundamentally regroup and launch something like that in the future? TPP, it's a massive own goal. There's no question about that. Um, I think, though, that the demand signal from the region for American leadership is really strong, and I don't think the United States is going to ignore that signal forever. I don't think you're going to turn your back on it forever. And I think, you know, one of the really encouraging things is if you look, for example, at Japan and Prime Minister Abe's leadership where he's really stood up and, and worked to, to influence the administration to proceed with TPP in the form of the, the TPP-11 agreement with Australia also playing a leading role in that, which is basically saying, I think, to the region, but also saying to Washington that we understand that the United States has paid enormous costs to maintain this, this order, this operating system, as you've written about, Kurt, um, and that it's not reasonable for the United States to carry that load entirely on its own and that, that some of your like-minded democratic countries need to step up. And I think it, it is encouraging to see Japan do that and Australia do that and, and kind of hold the door open for the United States to come back. And who knows, there's been one or two little signals from the president and other officials suggesting that may even happen one day. Andrew, this has been terrific. Thank you very much. I can almost taste the marmalite. Um, thank you for Vegemite. Being, Vegemite, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I let my British roots show through. Just got a stump on that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for being with us uh, this week on Tea Leaves. Um, we really appreciate you taking some time with us, and you've really helped us understand not only Australia, but Australia's uh, role in the Indo-Pacific world. Thank you. Pleasure, Kurt. And to our subscribers, thank you all for listening. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time on Tea Leaves. Tea Leaves.